All right, so we are continuing uh, after our break last week for Hanok to talk about um, reading the Bible better. And we, I, I almost thought about taking uh, this week off and talking about something else, um, but I really want to push through this series um, and, and talk about these things. And every week, I want to bring up the importance. I want to remind you of why it's important. Um, I have a sense this week, I've had a sense all this week um, of um, like hard ground. Like, plow, like I was plowing hard ground all week. You ever feel like that? Like you just... It, you don't have a your your week's not inspired your days are not inspired you just wake up and you just do what you do and there's no life in it there's no excitement or joy you just you're just plowing man you just <laughs> putting it in low gear you're you're not making any real any real big uh big leaps or jumps it's just just going and um i had that feeling this week not only for myself but also for for us for the the congregation and um it was interesting that, that uh, Mark shared with me this morning that he had this sense all week, this, this feeling that um, of, of like a war coming, trouble coming, um, and, and chaos. And, um, and I've been feeling some of that too and sensing some of that too. You know, we have um, a nation that's divided more than, than we always say, more than it's ever been before. Well, probably not more than it's ever been before, but pretty divided politically, racially, ethically, uh, morally. And, and yet, we have areas of hope and light that show up. Hanok and I had to go to Sam's last week to get some stuff for last weekend. And um, we, were, we were walking back to the car and, and down the, the, the lane uh, in, the, uh, in the parking lot, uh, there was a, a, a lady, a white lady, who was pulled up to the trunk of her car with like 10 cases of water and um, just about that time a young black guy stepped out of his truck and was walking the other way and he went right over and, and didn't even hardly say anything just helped her start, start loading stuff in the back of her truck and I told Hanok I said you know these are the things we need to re- re- realize and recognize because the biggest Win for our adversary, whether you see that as Satan or the government or whatever you see our adversary is, the biggest win for our adversary is if we can be divided. And that chaos and that drama and all of that toxicity that is, is trying to leak into our world. We have an election, another election coming up in November. Well, if, if, if the last couple of elections are a track record of how this one is going to go, there's going to be upheaval. There's going to be trauma. There's going to be disorder, right? And I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks, and I want to do better about this, and I want to work towards this. I've been thinking a lot about my grandparents lately. And I didn't, I didn't know my grandparents super well, but I grew up on the land that they bought and formed and there's still still a well where there was originally a well dug there back in the early 1900s and 
I've been thinking about them a lot lately because they didn't have access to all the information that we have now. They were not drenched in world affairs. Heck, they probably didn't even know what went on in the next town until three or four days later after it happened. There, has, there have always been mass tragedy. There's always been chaos. There's always been wars. There's always been disease and famine. There's always been pandemics. There's always been these things. But this last two years has reshaped humanity. Why? Children, teenagers, suicide rate is through the roof domestic abuse through the roof crime robberies murders in broad daylight that's almost unprecedented why has this two years of lockdown quarantine etc etc these things have happened before in human history but why has this affected humanity at large so drastically I believe it's because we're at a point in an age in technology where we are able to see everything happening around the world real time. And we no longer, our lives are no longer confined to an experience of just me, my house and my property, my family and my few friends and my local community. See, that's all my grandparents knew. That's all my parents knew. Is their home, their property, their yard, the place that they work, the few people around them in their community and their close circle of friends, that's it. And what we don't realize, and I think we don't appreciate is that every time you turn on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or MSLSD, anytime we turn that on or we're on Facebook or we're in the Twitterverse or we're on Instagram or God forbid TikTok or wherever we spend our time, what we don't understand is that we as human beings only have a certain amount of mental and emotional space we only have a certain amount of energy mentally and emotionally and spiritually that we can expend in a given time now if we were our grandparents or our parents how would that energy be expended well it would be worried about taking care of making sure the house was taken care of dad would make sure the yard was taken care of make sure that the that you go to work and you work your job and you might hear stuff that's going on in other people's lives but they're people you know they're people that you live with they're your community they're your tribe and then you come home and you have supper and you take care of the family and you talk to your children and you, you spend time worrying about what's going on with them. Maybe you go outside and work in the garage for a little bit. I mean, a, a, just a, 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 a typical day. In their generation, they had extra room for caring, for feeling, for sensing because it wasn't corroded. 
It wasn't jam-packed of world events. And you know what? In my grandparents' generation, my, my parents' generation, there was bad stuff happening all over the world. Bad stuff happened. It happens constantly, and it has throughout human history. The difference with us today is that, like I said, we can watch it real time as it's happening. And you know what? I really hate, I really hate that there's massive tsunamis in Thailand and, it's, and, it, and they destroy you know, and kill hundreds of hundreds of people. I hate that. That's an atrocity. But you know what? That's something my grandparents would have never known about. And the difference is whenever I know about it and I see it on the news and I read about it on Facebook, it takes up some of that emotional and mental and spiritual energy that I have. And then I get on Facebook and I read about so-and-so that's died and, and I read the 175 comments of everybody saying how sad they are. I don't know them from Adam, but I know a friend of a friend who knows them. And so it takes up a little more of that care and that, that, that compassion that I have. And then I, I, I flip on the, the, you know, the TV or I, I you, you understand what I'm saying. And all these things that we know about take up valuable energy in our spirit and our emotions and in our minds that we need desperately. We need these energies desperately. And so this last two years, not only have we had people locked in their homes, not only have we had people, you know, uh, relegated to, to, to basically being told how they're going to live by their government officials, but we've had a lot of death. A lot of death. And, and the problem again is that you know what in Deritter you talk to somebody about COVID and most people are like oh we're still doing that it's not really a thing here but you know what I bet every one of us feel the stress of the pandemic you might not even be able to identify it but things are just heavy and you can go to any store, you can go to any restaurant, you can do whatever you want here in Borgard Parish, Vernon Parish, and you might see some people wearing a mask, but nobody's forcing anything on us, yet there's still this pall over everyone that is a, as a heaviness. Why? Because we know what's going on in New York. We know what's going on in California. We know what's going on in some of these other places, and we feel that. And so it affects us. November, there'll be midterm elections. You're going to vote for who you vote for. And you know what? Life is going to go on. Whoever is going to get elected is going to get elected. And life will continue to roll. And what I want to encourage us to do is that some of us We'll know more about a candidate in another state than we will about the candidates that we're actually pulling the, t the tab for because of media coverage and because of all this stuff. Can we, can we work together as an OAM family at least? Let it start here. Start with your family. Can we work to be a little more or, or a, a little less connected? I don't think that's a bad thing. 
that we work to be a little less connected, a little less aware of what's going on across the entire world. You say, well, golly, why don't, you know, we should pray for what's going on across the world. That, absolutely. Everything you know about, you should pray for. But here's the kicker. There's people right now that you're not praying for in your own world because your prayers are so filled with, you're overwhelmed by the magnitude of things that need to be prayed for, you know, in countries that you'll never visit, happening to people you'll never know. I'm not diminishing those things, but I'm saying these things take up energies that we have and we displace our energy. We're so tired and we're so stressed. And if you ask anybody, well, hey, how's it going? What are they going to say? Oh, busy. You know, I do it. Just busy. Busy doing what? Oh, you know. No, I don't. Tell me. Tell me, tell me what we're so busy doing. Oh, well, you know, just, you know what a lot of busy is? Is this right here. That's what a lot of busy is. We're no busier than our grandparents were. There's no reason for us to be. We're just more aware and we're more connected and it makes, it drains us of mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. And then you know what? We don't have that energy for our spouses. Oh, don't get messy. We don't have that, then we're short with our spouses. Why, why we get in, in fights and arguments with our, the, the person that's supposed to be our necessary other because we're so stressed out about something we read on Facebook or we're upset because of something we saw on the news so we lash out at the people closest to us because of something that we're disconnected from it's, it's ridiculous we're being controlled and manipulated and I'm not saying that it's the government I'm, I'm not saying that I'm just saying technology and where we are today we have the power to take back our own sanity because we're doing not so good on the sanity scale right now humanity at large is sick humanity at large today is sick and it in my opinion and mine's the only one that matters right now because I got the microphone my opinion is that one of the biggest causes of that is that we're so connected that we tend to look at what's going on out there and we miss what's happening right here. We're so stressed about the world events and what's, what does the world look like that we don't have energy to spend time with our kids, to lay on the floor and play, to go outside and throw a ball, to have a conversation with our teenagers, to actually connect and talk with them. Why? Oh, well, because they're scrolling on their phones, but also so because of, so are as parents. We miss all these opportunities. And, and listen, I'm not saying that Facebook is the devil. It probably is, but I'm not saying that it is. I, I I'm not saying technology is evil, and I don't believe that. We, I mean, we have a, we're very blessed to be able to connect with people all over the world via technology, Facebook and YouTube and all these other platforms, and it's wonderful. But after this camera turns off, and after you guys finish watching the live stream, those of you that watch on live stream, you need to make sure you're focusing on your family, not what's going on here in Deritter. And I'm so thankful that some of you drove in and visited with us. It was beautiful. It was, a, it was a fresh air for us. 
Yet when you go back to Colorado, North Dakota, wherever you're going, you need to focus on that. That needs to be your area that we focus on. So we talk about all the time, how are we going to change this world? How are we going to change what's happening? I think most of us see the world going off the rails at a really, really high rate of speed. Could we kind of agree with that? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and we are not people. We are not people. Most of us are not people. We understand that we're not waiting for Jesus to come back and, and suck us all out of here and rescue us from the train while it continues to go off the track. That's, we understand that's not what the Bible teaches. So the, the question is, what are we going to do about it? And I would just like to propose that there are some of you in here, there are some of you watching, some of you young people, you may, your destiny may be to impact the entire world. You have access to vehicles and, and opportunities that we, I didn't have access to, that the other adults in here never had access to. You may actually, God may want you and may be growing you to impact the entire world. And that's an awesome thing. But you know how many world changers God calls in a generation? I don't have a statistic, but I know it's a lot less than what we perceive. And I've shared this before, but some of us grew up in a generation where if you believed in Jesus and you were saved, your destiny was to be a world changer. And what that created in our gener my generation is this thing about looking at the world and how I can change the world and how I can affect the world and I miss the world that was right in my own front yard. And so we tend to be worried about water in Kenya and, and uh, oppression in China and you know this, that, and, and hunger in Ethiopia. We tend to be worried about all that kind of stuff, but we don't tend to be worried about making sure that the person next door that lives next door to us is okay. Because we're going to change the world and then everybody around us will be okay by default. It doesn't work that way. It's upside down and backwards. So how we know that we are the agents of tikkun olam. We are the agents of restoring the earth and partnering with Messiah, partnering with the Spirit of God to do that until Messiah returns. So how do we do that? Listen, some of us are not called to be world changers, but that doesn't degrade or lessen the effect that we are called to have. And that call may be to create the reality that we want. I think, I can't believe who it was. Maya Angelou maybe said, be the change you want to see. Or something like that. Or was that Beyonce? I don't know, it doesn't matter. But in essence, that's what, that's what we need. You know what, you want, a, you want a culture and a lifestyle like your grandparents had, a simpler, slower time? How do you get that? You start creating it. You do it. We create it. Well, you know what? I know, listen, don't fall out on the floor. 
But maybe at Friday evening, after you have your Shabbat meal, maybe you turn this off and you put it in your nightstand drawer. Oh, it hurts to even think about it. But I'm not going to be connected. I know. And you know, you know what I think is going to happen or what could happen? You go through a detox. Any of you have ever done a detox like for diet? Like, you, you know, you three days or, you know, a water fast or something like that. You go through a detox. The first few days are absolute hell. It's awful. And then about day three or four, you start to turn this corner where your mind starts to clear up you get more energy even though you've eaten less you start sleeping really well you just feel fantastic you're connected to nature and to the to the the earth you're connected in a way that you're usually not all because changing how we eat and getting all that junk out of our bodies maybe we need to do a mental detox a spiritual and an emotional detox and we need to maybe one day a week I mean it's the Shabbat after all and I'm not saying that you have to do this I'm just offering this up as a, a possibility maybe we can start to detox from all of this all of this drama that we're connected to all the time if we want heaven on earth it's our responsibility to bring heaven to earth and we do that in really particular exact ways. And I just want to propose one of those ways is that we detox from all of the stuff and we become more focused on who, who we're next to, who we're living with, how our community's doing. Not only OAM, but Rose Pine. Not only Rose Pine, but Rose Pine and DeRitter. That we become more connected to what's going on right here in the area that God's given us dominion over. So what does this have to do with reading the Bible? I'm trying to figure that out as I talk. Because this all wasn't planned. This is about why reading the Bible is actually important. This is one of the reasons why reading the Bible is important. See, I've made the statement before that most of us grew up with the Bible, but not many of us know how to read it. And when talking about learning, going back and learning how to read the Bible, many people get overwhelmed. And the truth of the matter is, you're not overwhelmed because this is a big task, learning how to read the Bible. You're overwhelmed because your mind is full of all kind of other junk. And you don't have space for the Bible because your carer is all worn out. Your mind is all worn out. Your spiritual, your spiritual sensitivities are all worn out because they're connected to everything that's going on around the world. If we start to cut some of those ties, we have more potential energy to focus on prayer and study. Because all these things that we're connected to and worried about, they are robbing us of potential. They're robbing us, they're overworking our spiritual muscles. They're overworking our emotional muscles. And when we get ready to go study the Bible, it's like, I just don't have the energy. Why not? Because we're worried about everything else. And it's time for us to start disconnecting, think of the Matrix movie, disconnecting from all the stuff in the world and reconnecting to what matters. And what matters is the scriptures that we have 
and how it teaches us about life and about God. So we've been talking about how to read the Bible better. And this is kind of part two of the foundation. And then we're going to get into kind of the nuts and bolts next, next week. But we've talked about inspiration. We've talked about uh, inspiration a lot, actually. We've talked about how we got the Bible. We've talked about how we should think about the Bible. And how we should think about the Bible is going to become more apparent as we go through this. And I've already got a couple questions, which I'm glad that, I, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about as we go through these uh, through these these lessons, these lectures. But this is a quote I pulled from a podcast, uh, the Bible for Normal People. I've mentioned this before several times. Pete ends. He says, "Fewer and fewer people of faith are willing to suppress that voice." telling them that something isn't right, that their faith doesn't match up with their day-to-day experiences. And wrestling with faith, rather than just defending it tooth and nail, but really wrestling with it has become the new normal. Heaven help us if we stop questioning what we believe. Leave it to Pete Ends to just absolutely step on your all over your toes you might sit there and you you might think yeah but like that's not me no this is totally you the reason why most of us are sitting in this room today is because at some point we looked at our lives and we looked what the church was teaching us and we said like there's a disconnect here something doesn't match up maybe maybe you you know maybe you were in the prosperity gospel and you were just thinking like i can't make these i can't make these things connect maybe you're part of a holiness movement where you're just worse than the worst of the worst and you just thought i can't i can't make this i can't make this stuff i can't live this thing anymore at some point in our in our recent past all of us have come to a place where our little voice started to say that book you're reading and the reality you're living don't match. And I think we need to be honest about that. I think we need to be honest and transparent and brave enough to say, you know what, sometimes the Bible teaches something and it's not what I've experienced in my life. Well, which one's right? (laughs) Well, we'll get into that. I've talked about this before. Cognitive dissonance. I love that word. Cognitive dissonance is when someone tells you this should be reality, but you're living a reality that's different than what it should be, and there's, there's a mismatch. And this happens all the time in church, and it's been happening for generations, and it's it's it will continue to happen. But what goes on at that moment? or during that season of of disconnection, is one of three things happens. And I've been saying this for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, and then I heard Pete say it on one of his most recent episodes, and I was like, look at me. Um, It's great when a smart person says the same thing you've been saying. Um, It's encouraging. 
What happens whenever we start to experience this dissonance and we start to look at Scripture and go, this is how the, the Scripture says the world's supposed to be, but this is how it is. What do we do with this? One of, people react in one of three ways. Some people just stuff that voice. Just, just stuff it. Just go like, I, I'm not supposed to ask these questions. I'm supposed to just believe what I've been told about the Bible. I just gotta, I just gotta believe it. I just gotta force myself to believe it and, and not ask any questions. If I want to stay in the religious community, the denomination, whatever I am, I just got to eat it and, and just, my tradition has got, has got to just continue to educate me and, and shape me. And what happens to those people is they may stay faithful members of their church, their denomination, their whatever, and they, they sit in a pew every week or they sit in a, a Bible study every week and they remain faithful, but they start to die on the inside. They literally die on the vine. The second group of people goes, you know what? This stuff doesn't match. There's, n- there's nothing to any of this. And they just bail altogether. They go find their reality somewhere else outside of the church and outside of religion. You and I identify in the third category where for somehow by God's graciousness and his, his, his omnipotence he's allowed us and invited us to see that sometimes the Bible functions in a way that's not really quite how we experience real life or life today and instead of not asking the questions and instead of just turning tail and running We've decided to be somewhere in the middle where we want to engage and wrestle through it. And instead of just sticking our heels in and defending where we are, come hella high water, we are going to understand what God is doing. And we are going to wrestle and wrestle and we're going to ask hard questions and we're going to be willing to be called heretics, heretics, and, uh, and, and you know, backsliders and people are going to say we've turned our back on Jesus and people are going to say we're Jewish and people are going to say we're, we're this and people are going to say we think we're holier than thou and, and people are going to say we're lost and we become atheists and oh we're in a cult and people are going to say all kind of stuff but you know what none of that stuff matters to us because we are determined to wrestle this out to find truth I want to be a part of that third group The problem is, kind of drawing from Pete's quote, the problem is that we've been taught that we have a Bible that never changes. And we have to apply that Bible that never changes to a life that constantly changes. So how do we apply a Bible that never changes to a life that constantly changes. Mm. You know, I'm glad to be in this wrestling company. And again, I've said this in the last you know, few weeks, but I don't know of many other groups, congregations that, that teach this or that are willing to wade into these conversations because it, it's, it can be deemed as dangerous. Well, if you start asking these questions, people can really start to question their faith. If you're questioning your faith because of a question, 
The problem is not with the question. The problem is with your faith. And I will say that to you over and over and over until you get it. We have got to stop being people, people of faith who are scared of information and scared of questions and scared of, 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 of exploration and scared of science and scared of people who think differently than we are. We've got to stop being scared because when I grew up and probably when most of you grew up, anything that differed than what, than, differed than what we taught inside of our four walls was not accepted, was not let in. You couldn't even listen to it. It was bad enough you had to go to public school. Oh my God, all the stuff that you heard there. And so we started Christian schools, which is great. And I'm not knocking Christian schools. But what it did was it isolated our children again outside of the world where they didn't have to defend themselves. It's another echo chamber in a lot of ways. We homeschool our kids. It's the biggest echo chamber of all. But it's the way we choose to do it. And so I'm not slamming any of that stuff. What I'm saying is we have got to stop being people that are scared of of dissenting information because the problem is not with the information and the problem is not even the motive of the person that's bringing dissenting information the problem if we can't stand up to it is something in us it reveals something in us so you know what if if we want to create tikkun olam and we want to create this better reality for ourselves and for our children on this earth we better know what our bible says about it and we better know how to read it because it is the blueprint of wisdom for how to bring the kingdom of god and manifest it on the earth and if we're not understanding how to read it or what it says we're going to end up with another church and this deritter doesn't need another church I can remember the day I was, I was bush hogging in one of our pastures, talking to God, and he wasn't talking back a lot. He was feeling really stingy. What, what am I going to do, God? I have no job. I just left the church. What am I going to do? And it's when he dealt with me about OAM, and, he, and I said, God, this area doesn't need another church. You of all people know that. And he said, I'm not asking you to build a church. And that was it. And I was like, yo, what else is there? There's family. There's community. There's whatever this is. And I don't know what this is, but I just know I like it. And I enjoy it. And I'm thankful for it. For... 2,000 years the kingdom has been with us and yet the world is in chaos our Lord and Savior Messiah Yeshua said that the kingdom was not only near and here it was within us so for 2,000 years we've been carrying around the kingdom in us and the world is going to hell in a handbasket is that something wrong with the kingdom, with the message, with the Messiah? Or is it something wrong with maybe the way we've done it? Are you saying that the whole church history has got it wrong and you have the answers? No. 
Because one, I believe the reason that the world's not fallen into complete and total chaos is because of the church. It's been the last bastion of sanity and goodness and righteousness in the earth. But the church is tired. And the church is locked into its things for a large part. And maybe this is what God is calling us out to do. We identify with Israel. We identify with Jacob. And Yaakov, who's the one that grabbed the heel, his name and his identity got changed from the one that grabs the heel to the one who wrestles with God and man. And I've said this before, and I'll beat this dead horse. How in the world do we think we can be called the people of God and sit on our spiritual haunches and expect God to do everything when by definition who we are are wrestlers or if you're in South Louisiana wrestlers by definition our spiritual DNA our spiritual heritage as believers in the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and his Messiah Yeshua our very nature and our very identity is in wrestling that's who our patriarch was he was a wrestler and he wrestled with God and he said I will not let you go he had a hold of God of the angel of the Lord and he said let me go and he said I will not let you go most of us want to think of a relationship where God has a hold of us but do we have a hold of him We've been lulled and spoiled into this doctrine that, well, God, he's got the whole world in his hands. But what we want is where the whole world has a hold of him and refuses to let go until he shows himself and blesses. To wrestle is what's in our DNA. And that's what we're here for, to learn how to wrestle. So I dropped a grenade a couple of weeks ago and said, maybe Moses didn't write the Torah. And Ms. Marva said, well, what do we think about it then? <laughs> and then week before last, I read a quote that upset a lot of people. Not upset, but... That scripture can never mean to us what it never meant to the original author and audience. Whew. People did not like that at all but here's my question when provocative things like that are brought up are you are you going to shut it off and get mad and offended or are you going to be willing to wrestle it because these are not just statements that i'm pulling out of the clouds this is these are things that smarter people than i have observed about scripture and you know what i want to learn from them because i want to mine the scripture and wrestle it for truth so we, if we want tikkun olam and we want to bring a better world to the next generation we better know our Bible and you know what I love the message of that I, I'm a sinner and I needed salvation and Yeshua came and gave his life and was resurrected so that I could be resurrected in life and if I follow him I can partake in that overcoming life and I, I love that message 
That's the foundational message to enter the kingdom. However, we need more than just that message if we're going to rebuild this world. And let us not fool ourselves. Our job is no smaller than rebuilding this world. So if you think you're insignificant, if you think that your gifts and talents don't matter, if you think that God can't use you, the task at hand is for his people to rebuild this world. Not after its destruction, it's already running that way. Our task is to rebuild it now and here. So we talked last a couple weeks about different parts of how scripture came to be and what the Bible is and, and, and all these different things. And so this week, really quickly, I wanted to run through just four examples of how Christianity and Judaism thinks about scripture and about the Bible. And again, I'm not asking you to pick which one is right or which one you believe. I'm asking you to think about these things and to hold them, meditate on them, and let them become a part of your thinking process. I'm not saying you have to go like, yep, that's what I believe. I'm just saying, let's understand how really intelligent and faithful thinkers, of, uh, thinkers about Scripture and about God have approached the Scripture and what we can learn from them. So we talk about how to read the Bible better. Before we get into the literary genres and stuff, and I'm going to talk about that at the end, we have to think about how we think about Scripture. And that's what this la- these laying the foundation uh, uh, talks, lectures, teachings, whatever these things are, have been about. Think about how you think about Scripture. Right? We've talked about Scripture. We're we pretty sure, pretty fairly sure, that it's not a book that just fell out of heaven completely done. We, we've, we've kind of addressed that ad nauseum, right? Which is kind of what I was taught growing up. And, and many of you might have been as well. So if it's not that, then how do we think about it? Well, we need to think about that. We need to think about how we think about the Bible. So we're going to look to some other people that have done a lot of thinking about how, they think, how to think about the Bible, and we're going to see kind of what they have to say about it. And it may spark some creativity for us. For some people, the Bible is the basic instru- instruction before leaving earth. Which, if you're leaving earth, I'm not sure where you're going. Because the Bible says a heaven's coming here. So, sorry, that was kind of a jerky way to say that. But in the basic instru- instruction part, we see the Bible, some, some of us, especially us in the Torah movement, is that the Bible is full of commands and we're supposed to do those things. I remember when I first came into Torah, I was so, I'd been so wrapped up in the spiritual movements, the charismatic, full gospel, Pentecostal, oneness, assembly, just all the, the stuff where I was at a place in my life where nothing really meant anything. And like, you just speak it. And then you say, I mean, in Jesus' name, and it happens. And so we, it was just this wishy-washy, like weird place where nothing meant anything. And I remember finding the Torah, and I remember being so, I remember being feeling so, um, so free. I felt free because of the commandments. 
And what I mean is that I just wanted to please God. That's all I wanted to do. My entire life from as young as I can remember, my prayer has always been something like, I just want you to look down at me. I just want you to be satisfied. I just want you to be pleased. And finally, when I found the Torah, I found a list. I found a list of all these commandments that God said, if I do them, he's going to be pleased. Holla stinking luya. Finally, I don't have to go to this prophet or this teacher or this one. I can go actually to the Bible and I can read it. And when I do it, like he says to do it, he'll be happy with me. And so I started doing them. And I realized this is really hard. Well, I mean, it's hard because I didn't know what I was doing. He said, keep the Sabbath. I said, cool, I can do that. And don't do any work. Well, what is work? What does that mean? And does the sat when does the sap wait, the Sabbath starts the night before? What is so, so there's, a, there's a lot of I thought, man, I found this list and it's black and white and it tells me how to please God. And as I started doing them, I started realizing this is like a lot of gray with a little bit of black and white. <laughs> but many of us in the Torah movement, we have we see the Bible as these an, this answer book. Heck, we've even we've even re- I got my, a, a shelf probably full of these little devotion books that I had from when I was younger. You know that like. If you're dealing with anger, go to this scripture. If you, and it's an answer book. I'm just going to be completely transparent. I've been angry before and gone and said, what does the Bible say about anger and gone to those things? And the, reading the scripture hasn't helped me not be angry. Yeah, I'm, it might even fuel the fire. Y'all know I've talked about this. I've dealt with depression for my whole life and listen I know every scripture about depression and the spirit of heaviness and oh you know and don't tell somebody who's depressed don't quote them the scripture about put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness it doesn't help the depression it just pushes you further down into the hole so when we that's what I'm talking about when experiences when the Bible doesn't line up with life all the time our experiences so what do we do with it then if it's not an answer book holy smokes not to say that it doesn't have answers it just doesn't give us answers in the way we like it's not a quick guide where we have these little condensed versions so so how do we how do some people how some people develop this idea of reading this book? So we're gonna start with John Wesley. Right? John Wesley was the father of which denomination? Anybody know? Methodist, right? Of course. So John Wesley said, and we're gonna look at the, the Christian viewpoint, some Christian viewpoints, and then we'll look at kind of the mainstream rabbinic view. John Wesley said that we interpret the Bible or we, we access biblical truth through four different er- four different uh, things come together 
to give us act to, to help us access biblical truth. That is the Christian tradition. That's what's been taught about Scripture for however long since it's been taught. The Scripture itself. Reason, our own gray matter, and personal experience. So as we kind of think about this, again, I'm not saying this one's right and you have to pick and choose one. I'm saying let's think about what these great thinkers and and intelligent and spiritual men said. In order to access the truth that is in Scripture, first you need the Scripture, which we all have access to. There are good translations, there are less good translations, but you have what you have and most of us have more Bible as Kyle says than we know what to do with we have the scripture itself is the scripture alone the source for all truth is the question we're asking is sola scriptura the scripture alone the source of all truth if your answer is yes you're dishonest and naive and probably a little ignorant how can I say that because if the scripture alone is a source of all truth why do we have 40 something thousand denominations if the scripture alone is the source of all truth I get it that in idealistically that is a very that's something we want I want to just be able to read scripture for what it says and it to be plain and simple truth I would love that it doesn't work that way I'm going to pull a Joe Biden. It doesn't work that way. Sorry, some of y'all don't watch the news. You don't know what I'm talking about. So, but, but to access the truth of God, we need Scripture. That's the foundation. So we have Scripture. On top of Scripture, we have, or in addition to Scripture, we have, the, the, in, our, in our world, the Christian tradition. And let's not be, let, please let's, let's stop fooling ourselves. If you're offended when somebody calls you a Christian you need to get over yourself listen I when people ask me so what, what are you guys my go to answer is not Christian but you know what it probably should be because that's who I am that's how I was born that's how I was raised oh, we, we practice our Christianity a little differently than the Christians we came from but let's not let's make if you put up the main Christian tenets in a three point thing most of us agree with that thereby making us Christians if you don't want to call yourself that that's fine but it's what you are (laughs) okay sorry but the bottom line is that in, in Wesley's this is called Wesley's quadrilateral by the way in Wesley's quadrilateral the Christian tradition shapes how we access biblical truth because if you grew up in in a Baptist church you see certain scriptures differently than those of you who grew up in a prosperity church or or Lutheran and and Catholic or whatever our tradition shapes how we access and see the truth of scripture I, I, I said this I think last week or week before there's verses in the Bible that the church down the road from me growing up like their main verses that my church never read I didn't even know they were in the Bible and we had main verses in our church that 
the church down the other way from us, their, their people didn't even know we're in the Bible because of our tradition and how we read the scriptures. Next, reason. Reason. Your own logic. Have you ever read something and went like, hmm, how does that happen? Right? Is that really true? Did it really happen like that? Maybe a lot of what you read, <laughs> you think, hmm. Our own reason and our own logic helps us to access biblical truth. Now, that can start to be a little dangerous and a little slippery. Because some people are highly logical and some people are highly illogical. And depending on what side of the, uh, side of the scale you fall on, where in the spectrum you fall in, you can create or make more problems for other people. But our logic, our own reason, God gave the Bible, He gave His Word to thinking people. He created thinking people. I love working with Brother Ron because he he solves problems in the most simple way and it blows my mind and he goes like oh it's just leverage yeah but how did you how'd you know to do that (laughs) god created thinking creatures we're intelligent we're now for those of you that believe in flat earth don't listen to this part but we, the first people we sent into space, the calculations for that trip were done on paper, by hand. What? Like, I have trouble with long division still. How in the world are there people smart enough to calculate buoyancy and, and all this kind of stuff in a place you've never been? Like, it's insane how smart human beings are. But then we open up our Bible and people tell us, don't think. We'll tell you what it says. Don't think too hard about it. Just eat what we tell you. And then when somebody asks you, just throw that stuff back up. But don't let it pass through the mental filter. Listen, not to toot my own horn, but I love getting pushback. And I think I think all teachers should like getting pushback when they say something that doesn't make sense or something that's stupid or something that maybe they misspoke, need to clarify or whatever. I think we all should want pushback. Parents, you should want pushback from your teenagers as they get older and you're trying to teach them how to live. Not disrespectfully, but it shows that your teenagers are engaging and they're thinking about what you're teaching them. And so if they come back with questions... That should be a sign that they're engaging in what's going on because God created smart, creative people. So part of Wesley's quadrilateral is reason. And then the last one and probably my favorite one is personal experience. We've talked about it a little bit. But this is something we all do in interpretation that we never talk about. You interpret scripture partly and I would say largely based on your personal experience it's just true it's just true um we we talked maybe a couple weeks ago about the idea that you know whenever i came out of the church i was so church hurt 
One of my friends gave me some really good advice. He said, take a legal pad and write down every major Christian doctrine that you can think of. Salvation, baptism, uh, you know, I mean, just blah, 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 blah. All the, the gifts, all these things. And he said, take them one at a time and study them. Study them from the ground up. And don't leave any resource out that you can find. Well, I was so church hurt what I did is I took salvation, let's say, and I went to all the scriptures that my Baptist upbringing had taught me about salvation, and I looked, for it, I looked for a way for it to mean the opposite of what they taught me. Because I wanted, I needed, it to, I needed that to be not true because I was hurt. And so I, I made the scripture mean the opposite of what they taught me because they taught it to me and they lied about other stuff. So why wouldn't they have lied about this? And a lot of people in the Hebraic movement, the Hebrew movement, that's how we began reading Scripture. Sadly, 20 years into it, that's how a lot of people are still reading Scripture. To prove somebody else wrong. The problem is you go in with a, with a, a motive and you, that motive taints how you read it. Personal experience taints how we read Scripture for the good sometimes and for the bad. personal experience is a massive filter with with which if you've been hurt in relationships you're going to read scripture a certain way it, how many times have you heard or maybe you've said this this has been you that it's hard to view god as father because my father was a deadbeat per, perfect example of how personal experience plays into how we read scripture some of some of you to this day and people you know for sure can't address God in prayer, can barely address God in prayer, and sure can't address him as father. Because you come from abusive relationships or neglectful relationships. That's a perfect example of how our personal experience taints how we see God and how we read scripture. So, this is Wesley's quadrilateral, and this is kind of what he thought about how, how we access the truth of scripture. Next, we're gonna look at um, uh, this is Richard Hooker he is uh, an Episcopal theologian and he's kind of famous for the three-legged stool I'm sorry the graphic's so bad but I, didn't, I couldn't, didn't have time to recreate it so he has a three-legged stool and in, in Richard Hooker's mind the truth is accessed through scripture reason and tradition. So which one does he leave out? Personal experience. That's interesting, isn't it? And, and in Hooker's defense, it, personal experience kind of falls in tradition with, with him. Uh, but it's not emphasized. So someone who kind of reads Scripture this way negates the personal experience and has more of a um, more of a logical type of sense to, to how we get scripture um, to how we access interpretation let's look at the last one the last one is a Catholic scholar named Richard Rohr and um, some people think he's brilliant and other people think, think he's an absolute heretic um, I don't care I just whenever he says something cool I like it and when he says something I don't like I don't it's that easy um but he has this quote. So he, he does a tricycle instead of a stool. 
um, because he's very motion oriented. And so moving forward, and he's, some people might call him a little progressive, but moving forward, he has the ways we access truth, experience, tradition, and scripture. So which one does he leave out? Reason. Although reason in his explanation is tucked up inside of experience. But one of the interesting thing about, about Richard Rohr's explanation of how we get scripture is that experience is actually the driver, it's actually the, the front wheel. It's the most important part. It, it's not balanced without tradition and scripture. But Rohr's opinion is that experience is actually what drives us in our search for truth and, and what truth we actually come upon. I think that's really interesting and really insightful. He has this quote, he said, Catholics claim to be the tradition people Right, with the liturgy and the blah, blah, blah. And Protestants claim to be the scripture people. This is only half true and results in a dualistic food fight. (laughs) If our methodology for discerning truth is a tricycle, the front wheel is experience because I think it wins out anyway, even though we don't admit it. And I have to say I agree. This is just to push that point and to, to shove salt in the wound of, of personal experience being a major filter by which we, we read Scripture. So I asked a question earlier about how we, how we read, read the Word that doesn't change and apply it to a life that constantly changes. We're going to look at the Jewish view of inspiration and, and mining for truth, hermeneutics, and then we'll talk about this. So the next, this looks really, I know it's hard to read probably. We need a TV like twice this size, right? Um, but I want to go through, through this. The, the Jewish hermeneutic is or the rabbinic. Let me say the rabbinic hermeneutic because there's different sects of Judaism that treat this differently. But the rabbinic hermeneutic, which we get from the Pharisees, um, uh, of, of Yeshua's day the rabbinic hermeneutic is broken into four parts and it's an acronym right so most of you will know this but the first is Peshat okay first is Peshat the second is Ramez the th- third is Drosh and the fourth is Sod and so it creates this um, this acronym called Pardes P-A-R-D-E-S Pardes um, which is a, a, a gives a hint kind of like paradise. So if, if you read scripture in these four different levels, then you find you find paradise, you find truth, complete truth. Um, so I'm going to go through some of this, and uh, I, you can find this online uh, and pull it up for yourself. But so the first level is Peshat. And the, the meaning of the word Peshat means you read the, the scripture for its simple, plain meaning. In other words, whatever the words on the page say, that's what it means. Now, you can see why that's really attractive sometimes, because I just want to read scripture for what it says, right? We've all been there. But how many of you know that if you just read scripture for what it says, it can get you into trouble sometimes? Because there's some stuff that it says that you're like, mm, that must be a translation issue. No, that's what it says. <laughs> um, just didn't cover that in Sunday school. 
They left out a lot in Sunday school. Um, so Peshat. The Peshat is the simple, plain meaning. It is, uh, it, it is grammatical and literal, right? Which means it, um, it, it takes in all the mechanical type of, of explanations. Um, its audience is generally the common people. Now, this is going to be an, a little insight into the Jewish world um, and how similar in some ways we treat it. Like, this is like your pastor giving you a three-point sermon with a little story because that's all you can handle, right? Because you're not smart enough to really understand the depths of Scripture. What your pastor's there to do is just to exhort you and give you fill your tank up enough for the next week till you come back next Sunday and you need another refill, right is that cynical sorry um so the audience for the for the Peshat is generally the common people um in order to to work through the plain meaning of text uh Hillel has seven laws that you you can look up all this stuff again um on the rabbinic level this is the Mishnah right so we've talked about this before um what is the Mishnah so the Mishnah is the decisions Halakhic decisions, decisions of the Sanhedrin that have been handed down since the time of Moses, orally, and then finally codified and written in the second or third century A.D. So, the Mishnah basically, if you look up a commandment, and you go, "How do we live out that commandment?" You go to the Mishnah; it's just going to tell you, "Bang, bang, 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 bang." Here it is. No interpretation. No, it's just this is the way you walk it out. So it's very mechanical, right, and very plain. Um, let's look at the next level the next level is Ramez and Ramez alludes to it that there's hints in scripture so when, when a Jewish person is reading scripture a rabbi is teaching they're, they're on the Ramez level they're, in a, they're looking for hints in scripture and this is mostly not grammatical but allegorical or rhetorical which means that um let me ask you this which one's more true the grammatical and literal meaning or the allegorical meaning which one in our minds is more true yeah but that's I mean give me the Sunday school answer which one is more true the literal literal and grammatical obviously yeah because that's true scripture we get into allegory and we go well, like now you're making it mean something right and that, is that your sense like oh well the the you're allegorizing it you're you're painting this other picture you're making it mean something now well not not really hang on this Ramez level is about allegory and hint its audience level is nobles judges lawyers scientists why because the thought is that they're more not that they're more intelligent but they're more intelligent they're more educated not that they're more intelligent let me say it like this informed is a good word is a good way to use it so see this is this is an important thing i think to to talk about real quick is that a lot of times we will push back and there will be things that you'll push back as we work through this information you'll push back on it and you go like just tell me what the bible says and i go well yeah, we got to allegorize it and you go why can't we just say what it says it's not that you don't have the capacity to understand it intellectually. It's not that you're not smart. It's just maybe that you don't have a, a bucket for that. You don't have a place, a context for that. Um, people talk about this thing all the time called dry heat. 
Has anybody ever been to the Midwest or to Arizona? You've experienced dry heat? Okay. See, I don't think, I don't believe in dry heat because I've never experienced it. Because when it's hot, it's, I know what wet heat is. I don't have a bucket for dry heat, right? So to me, you can say like, oh, it was 100, but it was 115, but it was a dry heat. You might as well say, and we rode unicorns. Because I don't have a, I don't, they're, they're about the same as fairy tale-ish for me, okay? Is dry heat a thing? Yes. Some people have experienced it. I don't have a context for it. I don't have a bucket for that. Does that make sense? Doesn't mean that I'm dumb. It just means that I haven't experienced that. So when we talk about the literal meaning of scripture, let's just be honest. That's how most of us were trained. That's how most of us were taught scripture. You read it in black and white or red and white. Hallelujah. And you, you read it for exactly what it says and you believe it exactly as it says. That's literal, grammatical, literal meaning. That's how most of us were trained. We weren't trained how to read allegory. Hence, this series on reading the Bible better. Um, but we weren't trained. So when somebody says, oh, well, yeah, this is what it says, but what it really means is this, we start to go like, mm-mm-mm, no, 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 no. I don't think so. But this is an ancient way of interpreting Scripture. That inside the scripture, there are hints at larger meaning. And so the reason why the Ramez is taught to the common people, is not because the common people are not, are not smart. It's because the common people are usually less informed. They have a, a narrower, I'm talking about in, in, the, in the ancient world, or in antiquity. The common people, what are their days focused with? Farming, masonry, you know, mechanics, ironwork, whatever. They, they, that's what their time is consumed with. What is a noble, a judge, a lawyer, what are they? They're reading books. They're exposing themselves to outside information. So they have a bucket for allegory. They have a place to put it. Does that make sense? I hope I didn't mess that up too bad. But so um, there's a hermeneutic level of 13 uh, laws of Ishmael. And then the rabbinic level, this is the Gemara. And I love the way this chart lays this out. So we have the Mishnah, right? Which is just the bang, 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 mechanical, how you live out the, the commandments in a Jewish community. And then the Gemara, what is Gemara? It is the commentary on, that, on those halakhic decisions. So this rabbi says this. This rabbi says, yeah, I disagree with that. I think it's this. This rabbi goes, y'all are both crazy. I think it's this. One rabbi goes, no, I agree with the first one. And then one goes, I agree with the second one. And there's this whole discussion. And when you, I meant to pull a picture of this and I didn't. When you see a page of the Talmud, it's laid out in a very specific way where in the middle, you'll have the Mishnah, whatever section. And then around it, you'll have the Gemara, which is the conversation the rabbi's conversation on the Mishnah. And we're like, what do you think about it? Well, you live in northern Poland. What do you think about it? Well, you live in Spain. What do you think about it? Because those are two really different places. How do you apply the same, uh, the same instruction to two different places? So this Ramez level is kind of like the Gemara, where you get to, to kind of explore different meanings of the text. Okay? And by the way, when somebody wants to talk bad about the Talmud... Usually what they're pulling from is the Gemara. 
some crazy rabbi said something about something stupid and they pull that one sentence. We talked about that last weekend. All right, the third level is drosh. We talk about midrash, right? We're gonna get together in midrash. By the way, that's not really what we're doing. But we, the drosh is uh, the explore, uh, exploratory level where we really start to ask questions and um, its literary level is parable or metaphor and it's generally spoken to kings, political scientists, diplomatic corps, etc. Um, and it's midrash is the rabbinic level. So the drash is where you can start to, um, let me see, I got a really good explanation of it here that I wanted to read. Um, oh, right here. Um, drash is um, an interpretation that's not explicit in the text. So you say, well, why are you really starting to make stuff up there? Not, not quite. Um, so Ramez, the second one we looked at, is uh, implying meaning. Drash is something that's not explicitly there but that you can draw from it we do this a lot we do drash a lot in christianity where we pull up scripture from here and we pull a scripture from here and we go well the meaning is not necessarily alone in this scripture but if we put this scripture with this scripture then we have a meaning right <laughs> pretext and and right we pull this well what if we add this verse over here that doesn't have this necessarily that meaning on its own and we put it together with all these three, now we have a whole theology and a whole doctrine. Let's start a denomination, right? So the last level of uh, Jewish interpretation or rabbinic interpretation, I should say, is the sod level. This is the secret, mystical, metaphysical, and spiritual level. And uh, this is usually the area of mystics or psychologists this is where you, you hear of the Zohar, right? This is the Zohar. Um, so let's talk about this for a little bit because I think this is really interesting. So some traditions of Christianity live in the Peshat level. They don't know it. We didn't know it, but that's what it is. We live in the Peshat level. Whatever it says, it says, right? It's where it is. But then if you're in more like spirit-filled circles and stuff, they live in the sowed level, the mystic, mysterious, right? And here's the thing about the way that, that rabbinic um, hermeneutics is taught is that this is a, this system of, of learning and interpreting scripture, scripture and gaining truth is a progression. In other words, if you grow up in a, in a, a you know, Hebrew school or whatever, you as a young Jewish kid, you don't just automatically start looking for the drosh meaning of stuff. You learn the entire Torah in the Peshat, and you believe it all. And then as you grow, and as you start to get contextual buckets for these different areas, then you can start to learn the Ramez. Because what does the Peshat do? It anchors you, right? It's your foundation, it anchors you. Listen, you may read it all and you may understand that what the Torah says about this is not necessarily historical. I, yeah, I get it, whatever. But it's an anchor point. And then from that anchor, you can go, well, this verse has a little hint to this. It must connect to this verse. But you have that anchor of the Ramez. 
And then the drosh gets a little more out there where you can kind of, you know, it starts to spread out a little bit, but you have the anchor. And then the sod is the mystical and all that kind of stuff, but you have the anchor of the remez. What we do in Christianity a lot of times is that a lot of, in Christianity, we jump straight into the sod. That's what we want to know. I want to know the secrets, the mysteries, all this kind of stuff. And we jump in, I want to be led by the Spirit, quote unquote. Well, what you end up with is a bunch of wackadoodles that don't know what anything means because they've jumped in at the end of the line. And we don't have any foundation. And so you give a brand new believer, you know, the book of John to read to start. John is not the place to start a new believer. It's highly technical and it's highly sowed. It's mystical. It's, it, John is unlike any of the other gospels in that, in that way. So this, these four kind of levels of interpretation are the way that the Pharisees gave us and what the rabbis um, have developed over the, the last you know, couple of centuries as a way, a systematic way to understand and reveal scripture, the truth of scripture. So you can kind of see how they're different this doesn't say anything about experience or or any of that but certainly built into this is the jewish traditions right it's funny how it's funny how so many people want to want to push against jewish tradition tradition we watched fiddle on the roof this weekend um want to push against jewish tradition and say well i'm not i'm not going to let my reading of scripture be tainted by the rabbis uh you know tradition well that's fine it'll be tainted by your christian tradition what because it there's that is what feeds our interpretation we can't get away from that we can lessen it we can we can you know mute it here and there but we can't get away from it altogether um and so we look at kind of how we access truth. I want you to kind of keep all this stuff in mind as we start talking about the different, um, the different types of literary genres we're going to discuss. So we're not going to cover all of these, but this is just a sampling of what type of literary styles the Bible contains. And you may have never seen this, may have never thought about this, but look at this. And then think about how you read your Bible. So the Bible contains historical narrative, which means it's not necessarily straight history, but it's not narrative, like it's just kind of, it's not a narration. It's somewhere in the middle of straight history and somebody kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. Historical narrative. Then you have poetry. How many of you like to read poetry because you really understand what poetry is trying to do? Exactly, right? None of us. You had to read poetry in high school and you probably was like pulling teeth because you're like, what is this dude talking about as I wonder when I want, I don't, what is he talking about? We don't like to read poetry because we don't know how to read it and we don't know how to understand it. Well, you know what? Your Bible is full of it, okay? Next is wisdom literature. We're gonna talk about wisdom literature Prophecy. One of the comments I got about the scripture can't mean what it never meant. One of the comments I got was, well, I don't know that I agree with that because it precludes prophecy. It precludes prophecy. In other words, prophecy can mean whatever it, it needs to, you know, whatever it means in the future. Maybe we have the wrong idea of what prophecy is, though. 
And that would be my argument. We're going to talk about that. Um, law. The Torah. There's a way that we can read law that we maybe should consider reading law that's different than the way we've actually read it. Uh, parables. Kyle has done a lot of work on parables, so we won't spend a whole lot of time on that. The epistles should be read a certain way. <laughs> um, the Bible also has myth. This is one of my favorite areas. Myth. When I say the word myth, what immediately comes to your mind? Untrue, right? Greek, yeah, right. Greek, which we know that stuff is untrue. Your Bible is full of myth. But myth doesn't mean untrue. Oh, it's so good. Okay, so we're going to talk about myth. The Psalms are a specific genre. They're a way of, there's a way of writing and communicating. And then maybe my absolute favorite is apocalyptic. Um, because we've said through the last couple of weeks that we base our reality and we train our future generations based on how we understand the Bible. A large part of that reality that we've created is how we understand a couple of books. That being the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. A lot of Christian reality and our own reality, the way we see the world is based on two books, Daniel and Revelation. Those books are both apocalyptic literature which we have no idea what to do with i'm just telling you we don't we don't have any idea how to read it how many of you have a good working understanding knowledge of revelation if you do really raise your hand seriously that's what i thought see we don't understand it we don't know what it's talking about what is it trying to do what is john on tripping on acid like what is going on oh it's just a spirit sorry um we don't know how to place revelation because it's a form and a genre of literature that we don't necessarily have today we're not used to reading so we're not going to go through all these in detail but this is just a small listing of when you pick up your bible and you do bible study do you think about any of this well what type of what type of what type of literary vehicle is being used here we don't think about that right but again i'll go back to my old throwback illustration you don't read a lab report from your doctor the same way you read a comic book. If you read them the way they're supposed to be read, you get much different results, much different expectation, right? You read them the same, you end up in a pickle, or as a pickle, I don't know. But it's not good. And yet, when we read Scripture, we don't, we don't, we just go like, well, I'm just going to read it for what it says. No, that's that's physically and intellectually impossible you have all this stuff to deal with so um i know today was kind of random at at certain times i'm sorry about that i got a lot on my mind and a lot of upheaval spiritually so um thank you for tracking with me a little bit except for those of you that tuned off 45 minutes ago um later um so i love you guys let's pray for our online family and then we will uh go and eat together and spend some time together father we bless you and thank you for our online family we thank you so much for um what they mean to us uh, seriously and and genuinely um the comments the questions the um the critiques the pushbacks the just all the the conversation that we're able to have around you and your word and your kingdom is so awesome and I'm thankful, Father, that there are people watching today that don't agree with anything that I've said today um, and people that, that are, are trying to figure out, navigate and all. I'm just thankful that we're doing this together. Community, our tradition, our, our heritage, our history is so vitally important. 
It's what anchors us and, and allows us to explore who you are in safety. So I'm thankful for our local folks. I'm thankful for our online folks. And I pray that we can find, uh, find safety and comfort in one another uh, as you take us on this wild journey of faith. We love you and we bless you through Yeshua our Messiah. Amen and amen.